Morning. Um, we're going to read a passage of scripture and then we'll pray and dive into this. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can to Mark chapter 9, uh, or you can follow along on the screen. Uh, it'll be up there as well. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 17. This is what we read. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this, how long has he been like this? And from childhood, he, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. An incredible scene. Uh, Jesus actually quickly heals this young man because he doesn't want to make a spectacle of him. If you could put yourself in the, the sandals of that father who uh, had been watching his son endure these kinds of things his whole life long, it would be heartbreaking. And he's heard about this incredible miracle worker who's doing things that nobody has ever seen anybody do. And he brings him to Jesus' disciples and they can't help. His hopes are crushed. But then Jesus shows up and uh, loves his son like nobody ever has. It's an amazing story. And it kind of sets up our conversation this morning. So pray with me. Uh, Father, what a God you are. What a Savior you sent us. What love Jesus displays. It gives our lives meaning. It gives our lives direction. It gives us forgiveness for all the sin and brokenness in us. It gives us hope. Thank you, God, for meeting us here in this place this morning, we pray for your blessing and for your spirit to teach us as we would pray that your spirit would be poured out upon your church all over this and around this globe this morning. That as people meet and pray and gather, some in very dangerous and difficult situations, may Jesus be lifted up and may hope be given and hearts be strengthened. 
Even as we sit in this room, Lord, there are marriages on the brink. There are arguments that have taken place. There are desperate situations that different ones of us face. And, and Lord, in some great and big sense, you are the answer to all of those needs. And, and uh, we just thank you, God, for that truth. Guide us as we try to deliberate and think together this morning. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we began talking about the problem of certainty or uh, the the fact that we kind of live with uncertainty. We live, uh, the reality of being a a human being is is that we live with a great deal of, of uncertainty. I made four observations last Sunday, and I'll just mention them again to you. Uh, The first one was that uncertainty is an inescapable part of the human condition. Nobody lives in a place of certainty. Nobody. Whether you follow Jesus or you don't, you live with a great deal of uncertainty. And uh, second point, every human being lives by faith. Whether you're a secular materialist or a naturalist or whether you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus, everybody has to choose to believe certain things. That's really a starting place for uh, the things uh, that are actually most uh, meaningful to us. We take many of those things by faith. I also said that uncertainty and doubt can lead to stronger faith. In fact, I really do believe that sometimes the struggles we go through, if they're intellectual, spiritual, what have you, they're actually designed to take us to places where we just learn to trust. And then when we do, we discover him to be trustworthy. And then I talked about when certainty is impossible, (laughs) we're not off the hook. We still have to live faithful lives. We still have to follow. We have to listen. You know, that's the the challenge of this thing of being a follower of Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about faith and science. You know, much has been written to suggest that the scientific method and the use of the scientific method makes things like faith and belief in God kind of obsolete, really. Um, or that at the very least, it undermines the credibility of the Bible. The Bible is simply a book you cannot believe. You can't take it seriously. And um, we, uh, we just read a story about a father who had a troubled son, and he brings that son to, to Jesus. And Mark gives this description of the son's condition. Again, he says uh, he has a spirit, and a spirit has robbed him of speech, and it seizes him, and it throws him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. What medical condition does that sound like he might be describing? Yeah, epilepsy. And it brings up kind of an important question for thoughtful people. Uh, Sometimes people will say things like this. They'll say, you know, in ancient times, when people didn't have science, they needed religion to explain certain kinds of a phenomenon, certain kinds of things. They didn't understand epilepsy as a neuro, or things like neurological disorders, and so they would attribute them to demons and spirits and stuff like that, or they didn't understand about things like lightning and uh, even weather, thunder, things like that, so they would attribute those kinds of things to gods, Thor, Zeus, and so on. And now we have meteorology, and, and we don't need Thor and Zeus, although I would say Thor and Zeus probably could get it just as accurately. Um, <laughs> And they would say things like, you know, people of the pre-scientific era might try to explain the existence of human beings along these lines by saying God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. 
But, you know, now we know that billions of years ago, there were these amino acids in a pool that were charged by lightning and everything came together and life developed through that particular process. And the general idea in discussions like that, when you hear those kinds of sentiments or thoughts being expressed, is that religion was, at its heart, an attempt to explain certain things by people who didn't know any better. Um, And that was okay then, uh, but this uh, is not okay today. Uh, Today we have science. And and therefore, faith in God or belief in the supernatural, that kind of thing is is obsolete or... (laughs) At best, it's just silly. It's just silly. And so our question this morning is, does the rise of science mean that it, that it no longer makes sense to believe in God? Can you have faith in God and still be serious about and open to the findings of science? Another way of putting it. And today I want to make three observations instead of four. Yay? Okay. The first observation is this. Uh, You know, in my opinion, um, much of the supposed conflict between faith and science in our day comes from a misreading of the Bible. Now, let me explain. I think that sometimes controversy arises because people who read the Bible, people like us, uh, many of us, don't understand uh, the true nature or the intent of the biblical writers. In other words, we make the Bible say something that it's not really actually trying to say. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, this one's an easy example. There, there are some examples I could give you that would be more, more challenging, but I don't have time to dive into that. So this is an easy example, okay? Uh, many centuries ago, a scientist by the name of Galileo uh, said that science is leading us to believe that the earth actually revolves around the sun. That was kind of, whoa, shocking, you know? He was agreeing with Copernicus. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. And there were leaders in the church who said, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. That's just flat out wrong. I mean, look at Psalm 104, verse 5. It says, he, God, set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. It's not moving around. The sun is moving. So that cannot be true. And the the problem here, of course, was not that the Bible was wrong. It was that the reading the interpretation of the Bible was wrong. And the truth is, our particular readings of Scripture always need a degree of humility. And that's hard to come by, humility, isn't it? Particularly when we talk about things that are very dear to us. We want to be insistent. And um, where there's debate, where there's discussion, where there's discovery, I would argue we need to have humility about the views that we hold. In our day, certainly one of the biggest controversies around faith and science revolves around Genesis, and the creation story. Uh, you know, we ask questions, you know, how old is the earth and are Adam and Eve historical figures? And, you know, what did or where did matter come from? And, and if you want answers to those questions, there are answers. Joseph's phone number is 828-289. Are you taking this down? Light him up. You know, it's my personal opinion, though, that here again, we need to be careful and uh, we need to be humble as we read and as we seek to understand God's word. Uh, how do you actually understand the early chapters of Genesis? That's a, believe me, that is a loaded question, which I have been reading on in recent weeks, uh, and it's been very interesting to me, that the numbers of views that are out there of Christians, of people that want to take the Bible very seriously. 
And to be sure, Genesis is a critical piece of writing. In fact, Genesis actually changed the world when it was written. That opening line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Oh, my goodness. When that was written, the world was never again the same. And that's not an overstatement. But Genesis was written, of course, by a real person. And it was written in a real context. And it was written to a real audience to address real questions that actually were being debated and discussed in that day, in that time in which it was written. And the questions they were asking then were not about the proper chronology of creation days or the origin of matter or the age of the earth or Darwinian evolution or issues in modern science. That discussion was not going on then when these texts, when these things were written. It's interesting uh, Genesis was actually written against a, a rather interesting backdrop, uh, a backdrop of polytheism. Uh, in the Mesopotamian cultures that existed at that time, uh, there were lots of gods that were worshipped, lots of objects also that were worshipped. The sun, the moon, the stars were worshipped. Uh, imagine this. People would look to the stars to give them guidance. They thought that their future was controlled by the position of the planets and the position of the stars. Can you believe they were that superstitious? They didn't believe that there was a connection either between the gods and things like morality or ethics or justice. No connection. Because actually the, the gods were quite capricious in terms of their behavior and how they treated humans, even how they fought among themselves. Folks at that time believed that human beings were created more or less servants or lackeys to the gods to entertain or to worship or to do their bidding. People were not made in the image of the gods. There wasn't a, a sort of metaphysical connection. Uh, people had to placate the gods. That's why you had forms of worship that we look at today that are just abhorrent. I mean, the sacrifice of infants in order to placate a god and get something from that god that you felt you desperately needed. The writer of Genesis is concerned with refuting ideas exactly like that. And uses the cultural raw material of that day, that age, that culture of the times in which the early chapters of Genesis were written. To make affirmations that were utterly, get this, utterly and absolutely unique about God. Genesis makes a number of important declarations. Genesis says that there is but one God. That was new. Genesis says that this God created the heavens and the earth and that creation is good. Matter, material things are good, not evil in and of themselves. And Genesis points out that none of the things created happen to be God and that human beings in particular are unique, unique entirely because there is a relationship between the maker and the made. We're made in his image. The Bible tells us. Genesis uh, tells us that something has gone wrong and that we are not as we should be. And the explanation that Genesis gives us is that it's because of a, a cosmic failure that happened with Adam and Eve, this falling into sin that affected everything in the cosmos. Even creation groans today, we're told, in the New Testament because of what happened there in the Old and we are also told in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, that God is the only hope of setting any of this right. 
at fixing any of this. And these things are at the indisputable core of the opening chapters of Genesis. These are the things that Genesis declares. The writer is not trying to answer questions, I don't think, posed by modern science. Because there was no modern science back then. There was a different agenda back then. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of emails and phone calls, and people want to take me to coffee after this, but I'll keep going. Um, I'll give you one example of why I think uh, this is true, what I've said so far, but, but sometimes misunderstood. If you've ever read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 very carefully, side by side, and kind of map them out, you'll see that on the first day, and this is Genesis 1, on the first day of creation, God says, let there be light, and there is light, you know. And again, this is written against the backdrop of a time and a culture when things like the sun, the moon, the stars were being worshipped. They were thought to be things that actually influenced the daily events, uh, specific events in the lives of people. And Moses uses here in, the cha- in Genesis chapter 1 kind of a quasi-poetic language. And I say quasi because it also has the sound of, of historical narrative as well. That's what makes the interpretation of Genesis 1 so difficult. There's some poetry there. There's also kind of a historical narrative or prose. But Moses chooses to use certain refrains in the writing of Genesis 1. Things like, and God said, appears 10 times. And it was so, seven times. And God saw that it was good, seven times. And let there be 10 times. And this, these kinds of formulations are really very similar to Hebrew poetry. Is it poetry? Is it historical prose? It's actually, I think, probably some of both. Um, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, God made two great lights. The greater light, and, and just stop right there, that term, the greater light and the lesser light that we'll read in just a second, those are terms unique here to Genesis 1. They don't occur anywhere else in Scripture. And uh, it's, it's very poetic, uh, exalted language, which again leads you to go, well, wait a minute, is this poetry? Is this historical uh, you know, narrative? What, what are we reading here? It says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky. Again, an interesting poetic description. To give light over the earth. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning and there was the fourth, uh, fourth day. The great light that governs the day is, of course, good. Very good. Okay. Does anybody think that it's kind of odd, though, that the sun doesn't show up until the fourth day? I mean, you've already had three days, morning and evening, but there's no sun. How does that happen? Uh, what I think uh, we're reading here is we are reading some historical narrative, but we're also struggling with some poetic elements in this historical narrative. And we, what we don't find the writer of Genesis chapter 1 trying to give us is a strict scientific chronology of the unfolding events of creation. We demarcate evening and morning because of the sun's rising and the sun's setting, do we not? So don't you think that a good editor would have caught this little problem? If, if they were wanting to give us a, a, a very scientific or naturalistic explanation, a look at, you know, here's the exact order of the creation events? I don't know. I think he might have. Now, does that mean that Genesis chapter 1 is not teaching us anything of true historical significance? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. But it means we have to have some humility. <laughs> we have to work hard. That the interpretation of chapter 1, chapter 2 is, is a challenge. It is a challenge. 
I think the writer of Genesis is not trying, uh, what, what the uh, writer of Genesis is not trying to do is give a modern scientific chronology of when the sun showed up on a particular day versus when there was day, you know, morning and evening, day and night kind of a thing. He's not saying there were three days uh, where there was light and darkness and morning and evening, and then on the fourth day, the sun came along. I don't think that's his point. He's simply showing us that the sun, this thing that's worshipped by so many, shouldn't be worshipped. It is created, it is put in place by God, and what is more, it is controlled by God, and it is given to us for our blessing, for the ordering of what is chaotic, because the sun is what orders the coming of the light, the setting of the light, the darkness coming upon us. This understanding, too, is not a new thought among Christians that developed uh, with the advent of modern science. In other words, what I'm saying to you right now is not something we, we've come up with or that some pastor or some theologian has come up with recently. In fact, go all the way back to Origen. This is 185 AD, and this is what Origen wrote. He said, for, for who that has understanding will suppose that the first and the second and the third day existed without a sun and moon and stars, and that the first day was, as it were, without a sky? That too would be an implication of Genesis 1. I do not suppose that anyone doubts that these things are intended figuratively and not literally. Uh, it's a very interesting interpretation. It's a very much debated interpretation today by Christians, by people that want to read the scriptures and take them seriously and believe in their authority. The point is that the writer of Genesis, Genesis 1 in particular, is... What he's written is something different than a strictly chronological account of the creation events. It's something more than just historical prose. Are you with me so far? Are you wishing you weren't here? You can tell me the truth. You can tell me the truth. Okay. Here's what I think Moses' point was. Don't worship the sun. You're making a mistake if you do. Don't worship the moon. Don't look to the stars for guidance. These things are not God. God made these things. Only God is God. He made these things. He put them in place. What's more, he keeps them functioning. And he alone, God alone, should be worshipped. God alone is the one to whom we surrender our lives and pledge ourselves to follow him wholeheartedly. I think that was Moses' message, at least in part. I'm not at all convinced that Genesis 1 gives us the information we need to date the earth. I know some of you are convinced of that. It's okay. I don't hate you. Um, uh, I'm not convinced that Genesis 1 gives us the information we need to describe in any scientific detail the formation of matter. Now, it clearly makes it obvious that God's the one who made matter. I mean, stuff came from him. Um, could the whole universe have started with a big bang? Yeah, 14 billion years ago. I mean, this is just me talking. Sure, it could have. Why not? God could use any method he wants. However, I will point out that there are many scientists today that are starting to question the Big Bang Theory. Are you aware of this? So you've got to be careful with any scientific theory because uh, there's a question of just how long is it going to be around because of new discovery and research and, and so on and so forth. Um, I actually think God could use any process he wants to use for the development of life on earth under his guidance. Honestly, I think... Uh, uh, it, it's entirely and totally up to God to, to put processes into place and, and use them for his glory and for the development and for the furtherance of his purposes here on earth. Now, I would hasten to say that no matter what you think about so-called human evolution, and Christians are all over the place on this today, the Bible declares quite clearly and emphatically 
the uniqueness of human beings. And thankfully, the Bible gives us a solid, reasonable basis for understanding the true nature of humanity, you know, who we are. You see, because we are created in God's image, we have a soul, we have a spirit. Dogs do not. Cats might, not sure. There's something different about cats. But, but human beings have a spirit and a soul. And what is more, human beings think God thought, God's thoughts after him. In other words, we think like God thinks. We image, we mirror the way he thinks. We have a conscience. Our conscience has a sense of right and wrong, a sense of purpose, a sense that even things like death are wrong. It doesn't feel right to us when we face death ourselves or someone we love faces death. We have these things, I believe, because we are made in the image of God. This is part of our intrinsic nature, whether you believe in God or not. And this is a glorious thing. Uh, and I, a thing that I might add that is utterly inexplicable if you're an agnostic or you're an atheist. If you're an agnostic or an atheist, we'll talk more about this in a moment, you have great difficulty positing that certain things are intrinsically right and certain things are not, or that there's a certain important purpose for every human being. Again, we'll talk more about that in a second. So regardless of your interpretation of Genesis 1 and 3, and Christians differ on this, the historicity of Adam and Eve, I do believe that Adam and Eve are a particular couple that probably helped some of you Breathe a sigh of relief. I do, I do believe that. Um, age of the earth, regardless of your view of the age of the earth, regardless of your specific view of Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2, is Genesis 2 a recap of day 6 and Genesis 1, or is it telling us or giving us a, a, di a whole different lens through which to look at the creation process, not looking at chronology really at all? Whatever your position on that, the point is, Christians, real people that want to take the Word of God very seriously and have their lives based on the authority of the Word of God Real Christians like that differ. And I'm just telling you, in my opinion, that's okay. We shouldn't ought to lynch each other around this. Debate and study and learning, healthy things for us to do, helpful things for us to do. At the end of the day, we can disagree on some of the details. Some things are, though, non-negotiable. But let's all exercise some humility and some caution and some love when it comes to asserting our interpretations. You know, even St. Augustine, uh, around 350 AD, felt this same tension that there might be growing right now in this room, as some of you hear me talk about this. St. Augustine wrote a little book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis. And he was cautioning his readers, uh, as they read and as they interpreted, to have some humility. This is what he said. He said, often a non-Christian knows something of the earth and the heavens and the motions and the orbits of the stars and, and uh, this knowledge he holds with certainty from reason and from experience. He wouldn't have said the scientific method, but that's what he's saying there. Uh, it, it is thus offensive and disgraceful for an unbeliever to hear a Christian talk nonsense about such things, claiming that what he is saying is based on scripture. Uh, we should do all we can to avoid such embarrassment, which people see as ignorance in the Christian and laugh to scorn. That's fairly prescient, I would say. That's amazing, actually. This is 350 AD. This is when they actually did think that the sun revolved around the earth. Yeah, so interesting. This is 1,500 years almost before Darwin. So here's my first observation, and that is this. I'm going to kind of paraphrase what I said before. Sometimes Christians dishonor science. 
Let's be honest. Sometimes Christians say dumb things in the name of God. I mean, we're, we're, we've done that always. We've done that. Every generation does that. Sometimes Christians um, belittle the scientific enterprise as if it's utterly insignificant or doesn't matter or always wrong. Sometimes we create misguided controversy based on ignorance and misinterpretations of the Bible. We actually have a history of this. And when this kind of thing happens, that does not advance the cause of Jesus, particularly the way we do that sometimes. And so can I say that let's not do that? You know, let's love God with all our hearts, our souls, our minds. Let's be open to learning from science and let's be careful about interpretations of the Bible and the declarations we make. And let's realize too, the discoveries and the findings, the theories or the conclusions of science are always evolving and changing. So be aware, you know. Uh, understanding that we have two sources, two of revelation about God and the cosmos. Did you know that? We have two sources. One is, of course, this source right here, right? The Bible, that's one of the sources, very important source. What's the other source? There we go, general revelation, yeah. It's general revelation. Uh, if a scientist were to say that reason and science have disproved God or that reason and the scientific study have discredited the Bible, um, I would simply say, I hope I would say it with humility, that's wrong. That isn't true. We simply seriously disagree. That may be their opinion, but that is not an opinion backed by facts or based on sound reason. It's not an opinion that's demonstrable. Because good science, I would say, will always be in concert with good biblical interpretation. But understand the target's always moving with science. And even understand, because our, our knowledge continues to increase through all kinds of uh, discovery, archaeological discovery, and, and greater work being done in terms of interpreting the scriptures, we have some moving targets, right? What is the correct interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2? And, and what is the correct theory in science? It's moving on us, isn't it? So... That's why some of these things are difficult. That's why uh, it, it can be difficult for people to, uh, to discuss them with courtesy and kindness and love and forgiveness and patience. Uh, I would just say that science itself is not the enemy of faith. In fact, it is precisely Genesis' understanding of creation that things have a certain unity and a certain order and a certain rationality behind them that laid the foundation for the scientific enterprise. This is important. Uh, Dr. Rodney Stark uh, wrote a book called The v Victory of Reason. And in it, he says this. He says, it is not an accident that real science arose only one time in only one place at the end of the Middle Ages in Europe in the context of a Christian worldview that saw nature as the product of a rational God, a thinking God. Are set to explore nature in the expectation of finding unity and order in a way that would glorify God. That was the cultural context out of which the whole study, the whole uh, practice of science was born. The Christian worldview was part of the ecosystem that was needed for the birth of modern science. And it didn't happen anywhere else. And the giants of that enterprise, people like Copernicus or people like Newton or people like Galileo, all regarded nature as a book written by God. And they believed science, the study of nature, was actually mandated by God. 
Because God had said, you are to subdue and rule over the creation. Therefore, understand it. Figure out how it works. Nurture it. Protect it. Develop it. In other words, come to know and love and use and care for and wonder at what God has made. And I believe not only is faith not incompatible with science, but the Bible, when understood correctly, and science, when done well, actually together reveal more of the greatness and the grandeur of God. That's what I think. That's observation number one. Again, Joseph's phone number, I'll give that to you. Here's observation number two. Science itself is constantly, and I I mean this, constantly bumping into the inexplicable mystery and wonder of the universe. Not to mention the inexplicable mystery and wonder of the human species. And it'd be fun to spend time talking about both of these. I'm going to dive in mostly to the, some of the inexplicable wonder uh, of the universe. Uh, we discover more and more and more that there is something that seems to suggest that the universe had us in mind. Uh, in other words, the more we understand the cosmos, the universe, the more we marvel at its incredible uniqueness, okay? Over the last 40 years, there's been a lot written about a dynamic that's come to be called the anthropic principle. Anybody heard of this? The anthropic principle? Nobody? Okay. This principle uh, proposes that the universe seems to be very fine-tuned, to be the kind of place that can support life, specifically our life form. There's a scientist named Brandon Carter who introduced this idea about 40 years ago. Brandon Carter says this. He says, the more we learn from science, the more we find out that the universe in general and the earth in particular is a remarkably special place. Because so many things that would have to be exactly right in order for life to arise are exactly right. So many laws, so many contingencies in biology or in physics that would have to be fine-tuned precisely are fine-tuned precisely. I'll give you just a couple of these, but there are actually tons and tons of these. Um, Eric Metaxas in his book on miracles, the first chapter is really all about this. Highly recommend that to you. If you want to be blessed, that's a great one to read. But here's one, and you're going to all understand this uh, about as deeply as I do. A few of you will understand it more. Uh, The proportion of the mass of a neutron of hydrogen. Are you with me? When a neutron of hydrogen is converted into energy and nuclear fusion, it's called strong force. Anybody heard of strong force? Six of us. Okay. The value is 0. 0.007, 0.007. That's the strong force. Turns out that if that value were just a tiny, tiny bit different, say it was 0. 0.006, right? The whole universe would be hydrogen and there would be no life. Very, very, very finely tuned. If the strong force were the tiniest little bit larger, 0. 0.008, then all hydrogen would be converted in their energy and there would be no hydrogen at all and therefore there would be no life. So the strong force had to be precisely 0.007 for the universe to produce life. And it turns out it is. Is that cool or what? Does that make any sense to you? Okay. How about this? The precise orbit of the earth, its distance from the sun, 
It has to be exactly the distance that it is from the sun for there to be life. The existence of the moon and the pull of the, the gravitational force on, on the, this earth upon which we live, the distance of the moon from the earth, the axis of the tilt of our planet, all this keeps the earth in a particular zone where it's not too hot and it's not too cold. It's just right. And, and do you know what uh, physicists call that zone? Yeah, the Goldilocks zone. It's good. Uh, there are so many examples of this thing called the anthropic principle. The idea that there are hundreds. Once upon a time, they thought there were just a couple of variables like this. They, they now know there are literally hundreds of variables that contribute to the existence of life. And that each variable had to be exactly the way it is in order to produce a universe that could sustain life. Variables like the strength of gravity, the properties of water, the properties of carbon, the exact rate of the expansion of the universe they figured out had to be exactly what it was. In fact, if it had varied one tiny little bit, the very first one millionth of a millionth second would have either, the universe, if it had been different, just so such an infinitesimal amount different in terms of the expansion speed, the, uh, the whole process would have collapsed in on itself or it would have exploded. And that's the best I can do to explain that. Again, Joseph's number. On and on this goes in our universe or on our planet. In biology and physics, all these things have to be incredibly fine-tuned for life to exist. And it turns out they are. All of these things are. One physicist named Freeman Dyson writes this. He says, it's as if, and that's where I got this phrase, it's as if the universe saw us coming. Well, guess what? It did. It did. Fred Hoyle, a name you probably heard of, um, the scientist, he, he coined the phrase Big Bang, which as I've said now, some, some uh, astrophysicists and stuff are challenging that theory. But this, this is what he said. You've heard this quote before. He says, the probability of life originating on earth is no greater than the chance that a hurricane sweeping through a scrapyard would have the luck to assemble a Boeing 747. That's his analogy. Now, here's the thing. We can chuckle, but he actually meant that. He was doing the math around that, right? And he's saying uh, there, there, there are similar degrees of possibility there. This incredible improbability of the origin of life is something everybody agrees on. Understand, everybody agrees on these improbabilities, regardless of their religious persuasion. Even folks like Richard Dawkins agree with this. He just says that the idea of there being a God who exists is so impossible that even if the odds against life arising here on earth are billions and billions to one, he says that's more likely than the existence of God. Now, how does he know that? Well, of course, he doesn't know that, but that, that's a, a belief. That's part of his belief system. If you read his book, The God Delusion, it's so interesting. You find out that Mr. Dawkins believes in multiverses, or he postulates the idea of multiverses. He suggests that perhaps there are a billion, billion universes, okay? Not just one universe. Now, there's little to no evidence for this. It's just a theory, right? But it helps him with the math. And so that's why he postulates that there are multiverses. Um, the idea is that the more universes you have, the likelier the chance that at least one of the universes will have at least one planet that has life. That's the idea. So multiverses. And he says, you know, we're that lucky planet. Amen? Amen. Okay. And maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe he's right. But it seems to me that it takes a lot of faith to believe that, I would point out. Maybe it's not true, though. 
Just maybe physicists are discovering the truth of what the psalmist wrote a long, long time ago. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Maybe those aren't just pretty words. Maybe that's not just wishful poetry. Maybe the psalmist is observing exactly the nature of the way things really are. Maybe. That the universe has a purpose. That there's an observable order to it happens to be exactly what is needed so that we can be sitting here this morning, so that there's life on this planet. It's that, it's that kind of thinking that actually made the rise of scientific study possible. This place is orderly. We can study it. We can benefit from learning from it. It will teach us even about God. Science seems to be suggesting that somehow the universe saw us coming. That's number two. Ready for number three? Okay, here we go. The deepest questions of life. And you can put your own questions into that category. The deepest questions of life cannot be answered by the scientific method. You remember the scientific method that we all learned in high school, right? Pretty simple. We make some careful observations. We generate a hypothesis. We test the hypothesis. And if it is confirmed, then we might really have a valuable theory that actually explains the way things work and even perhaps what to expect next. Um, that's more or less the scientific method. It's, it's an amazing, useful tool, amazingly useful. But today, the scientific method has gained an enormous amount of prestige. Uh, it's called a plausibility structure by some. In other words, society has bought into the, uh, the whole uh, theory of evolution as a grand theory of everything. And it's become so accepted in, in institutions of higher learning that it's now a plausibility structure. In other words, you can't question it. You simply can't question it. And so... Um, there is a, an assumption that only the scientific method enables one to know something. It's kind of, again, a grand theory of everything. And therefore, uh, we cannot really know anything that's not scientific, scientifically verifiable, like God, for instance. Can't know. And, and this thought permeates our world and our society. But the question is, is it correct? Uh, can science answer questions like, why are we here? Can science answer questions like, what is our purpose? What do I have, or why do I have a, a self-conscious awareness? Uh, what should we do or not do? What matters? What doesn't matter? What should I give myself to, my life to? These are questions that we, we actually do have to answer in order to live. And whether you know it or not, you do answer those questions, intentionally or unintentionally. There's a writer, G.K. Chesterton, is a very... Uh, a very learned Christian writer and thinker, uh, lived some years ago. He argued that the real mystery, the real question of life, is how anything exists at all. Eric Metaxas takes this same argument up in the first chapter of his book. He said the big, biggest miracle of all is that stuff exists. Chesterton said that things like the Big Bang or natural selection or evolution, anything like that, may or may not explain the mechanisms of change that we observe in the world, but they certainly do not explain how all this stuff got here, how existence sprang from nothing. The real trick isn't changing one thing into another thing. He says micro or macro evolution. He says the real trick is creating something out of absolutely nothing. In other words, where did this stuff come from? And then, too, Chesterton asks, why is there stuff? Why is there something? We all want to know the answer to that question. Why are we here? What is life's meaning? Science struggles with questions like that, to answer questions 
uh, like that in a satisfactory way. Meaning always has a context. You always derive meaning from a context. If you want to know what the letter M means, you have to look at the word in which it's found. If you want to know what the word means, you have to look at the sentence in which it occurs. If you want to know what the sentence means, you have to look at the paragraph or the page or the book in which it, it occurs. And then you have to step back and look at the larger context of that meaning. In this case, of the life that we live or the world in which we live. And, and here is where science fails completely, unfortunately. In fact, the, uh, the religion of the scientific method, and that's really what it is. When you make uh, the scientific method into a grand theory of everything, it becomes a religion because it requires a lot of belief. The belief that science alone can lead us to all truth, that religion has given us a, a largely meaningless world. We're just about done here. I, I know you want me to be, but hang with me here. Uh, how many of you have heard of Bertrand Russell? I mean, this guy's a renowned, gifted uh, philosopher and thinker. He's an atheist. Um, he said this. He said, in the visible world, the Milky Way is a tiny fragment. Within this fragment, the solar system is an infinitesimal speck. And in that speck, our planet is a microscopic dot. And on this dot, tiny lumps of impure carbon and water with a complicated structure crawl about for a few years until they are dissolved again into the elements of which they are compounded. And that's all the meaning Russell can find through the scientific method and the employment of his brilliant mind into the philosophy around that. There's not a one of us here when we have a baby or we hold a grandchild that thinks that that little baby or that grandchild is just a tiny lump of impure carbon or water. And that's all the significance he or she has. Not one of us. I mean, maybe that's right. Maybe the universe is that mechanical or that impersonal. Maybe one day it will all wind down and just collapse in on itself. Maybe when the sun expands and the earth is destroyed, maybe then all of life as we know it will end and it will not have made any difference in that day who I've loved, who's loved me, who I've served, any influence or impact that I've had or you've had on other people. Maybe none of that will matter. Maybe we are just tiny lumps of complicated carbon, but I don't know anybody who actually lives consistently with that idea, not even Bertram Russell. You know, a movie maker, Woody Allen, you maybe have heard this quote before. It's absolutely ingenious. You know, he's always poking fun at everything, but uh, in this, he kind of captured the absurdity of where we are as modern human beings, and he gets it kind of just right. He says, more than any time in human history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other leads to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. <laughs> That's where we're at. That's where this takes us. In other words, all decisions are awful, terrible, all conclusions. And maybe that's the way it is, but obviously you know that I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Some part of me knows that I should reject that kind of thinking. I, I just know it deep in my heart. You know, all of us have a hunger, I think, for meaning. Why? It doesn't prove that meaning exists, but it's kind of suggestive, isn't it? We all have a hunger for food, too, don't we? Anybody getting hungry? 
okay? We all have a hunger for food. Wouldn't it be weird or odd if there was no such thing as food, but we had a hunger for it? We all have a thirst uh, for water, and we desire to quench that thirst. Now, that doesn't prove the existence of water. Boy, it would be so odd if we had this, this universal thirst for water, and yet there was no such thing in the universe as water. How weird would that be? We all have an appetite for relational intimacy. Um, and, and that doesn't prove that there's such a thing as relational intimacy, but how strange it would be if we lived in a universe where there was no such thing as relational intimacy. We all have a hunger and a thirst for meaning, as I said a moment ago. And maybe part of the reason we have this hunger and thirst for meaning is that we were literally designed for it just like we were designed for relationship because we're made in the image of a God who is himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relational. Maybe that's the reason. We have these hungers and these desires and these passions because we were precisely made for them. The Bible gives us the creation account and it tells us there is a creator and it tells us what's being created and why. And it tells us that what was created was actually good. It's worth studying. It's worth learning from because it tells us more about the creator. And it tells us that the creator is, in fact, good. And we discover, too, that all that was made was made for you and it was made for me. And it was made out of love for us. And we're called, we are told to rule over it and to subdue the creation for the glory of the creator. And so we marvel at things like creation and we are in awe of it and we write about it and we paint pictures, beautiful paintings of it and, and we wanna take care of it because it belongs to him. And this is what Jesus taught. Jesus said, you hunger for knowledge, you hunger for truth because you were made that way. Well, who happens to be truth? Jesus says he's truth. He says, you hunger for relationship because you were made that way to relate. And Jesus says, I've come to relate to you and to reveal to you just how the Father loves you. You see, in Jesus, we find that we are not a cosmic accident. It's the beauty of the gospel that tells us this. We were designed to have relationship with our maker. And he loves us, you and me. And he died for you and me to fix us and this world in which we live. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus believed. And, believed. and, I, and I think the bottom line is you, you, you have to believe that he was either crazy or he was deliberately lying or he was maybe right. And you must decide. Does Jesus' view of life and humanity and God the Father and purposeful living and brokenness and sin and redemption, does that make any good sense to you? And then the question you won't get complete certainty on this. But then the question is, will you trust him? Uh, that's part of what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about faith, what it is, and what does it mean to exercise? What time is it? Oh, the band went really long this morning, and uh, that's why it's... Let, uh, I'm going to ask you all to stand with me. The band can come up if you like. We're going uh, to close by reading together Colossians. Do we have this text? Yes, we do. This is actually a declaration, and the reason I'm going to ask that we read it is, if you are a Christ follower, you should read it with conviction. You know, it's what the Bible tells us about Jesus and creation, and, and, um, and you know, it doesn't answer all our questions. 
But I would say this, it, it answers the majority of the ones that are most needful for us to live a, a meaningful life. So let's make this declaration together and then we're, then we're gonna sing. Read this with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen.